Welcome to another episode of This Week with Sabir. Today, in today's hot seat is uh, Tim Ash. So let me tell you about him. Tim Ash is an acknowledged authority on evolutionary psychology and digital marketing. He's a sought-after international keynote speaker and the best-selling author of Unleash Your Primal Brain and Landing Page Optimization. Tim has been mentioned by Forbes as top 10 online marketing expert and by Entrepreneur Magazine as an online marketing influencer to watch. For 19 years, he was the co-founder and CEO of SiteTuners, a digital optimization agency. Tim helped to create $1.2 billion in value for companies like Google, Expedia, eHarmony, Facebook, American Express, Canon, Nestle, Symantec, Intuit, Humana, Siemens, and uh, Cisco. Please help me welcome Tim Ash. Welcome to the show, Tim. <laughs> hey, Severe. It's great to be with you. All right. So before we get started, because I, I mentioned it in your bio, I do want to show this book. It is available on uh, Amazon. Uh, the way I consumed it, I consumed it as a as a paperback. By the way, to thank you for uh, sending this uh, this beautiful autographed copy for me. Yeah, right? my pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, that's the book. Definitely pick it up. Uh, uh, so the way I consumed it, Tim, I don't know if you do this when you when you read books. I finished this book in three hours. The way I do it is I listen to it on Audible and um, I put it on 2x while because other people just listen to it and they they run around, right? Or they, they consume it in their cars. What I do is I open the actual book as as it's being read to me. I'm actually following the words because some books have charts, some books have figures and other types of things that you you don't really get it in when you are listening to audiobook. So I yeah, actually go, I, go through those kind of things. Yeah, I have the the main points in the book as you know there are a couple of hundred call outs. Those are visually different in the book and when I was doing the audiobook, I would drop my voice and I would I'd be speaking normally and I'd say this is a very important point and that's how you know it's a call out, <laughs> but I don't know if the people hearing the audio version understand that those are the main takeaway points. Yeah, I mean, you, you have those highlights, uh, for instance, like like this, you know, within the book like that. Yeah, exactly. In the audio the book is just read, you know, so yeah. you don't really, you don't, you don't get, you don't get the essence of it. So that's why I do both of those things at, at the same time. Well, welcome to the show. We're going to talk about a very interesting topic. Uh, to me, um, this is very near and dear to my heart. Um, because uh, starting as a computer scientist, what I what I learned uh, about this field, and I transitioned to becoming a a, a business operator, a marketing person, and uh, things of that nature. To me, it was all about psychology. It was all about numbers. It was all about uh, you know measuring things. That's what I loved, and, and I love math also. So that's that's why I uh, that's why I really like about it. So let's start with primal brain. What is it? <laughs> well, the primal brain is the part of your brain that actually makes all of the decisions. It, it determines what's risky, what's worth doing, how much energy to expand in trying to uh, reach a goal. It's basically the operating system that we share with most life on the planet. I mean, yes, there's the conscious mind and understanding language and being able to plan and defer gratification. We like to think that's where we operate most of the time. But in fact, the primal brain is in the driver's seat and making most of our decisions for us. The rational brain or the conscious brain wakes up after the fact just to justify or explain those decisions. 
That's inter interesting. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm going to share a story with you. Um, I've, I, I love binging on different TV series uh, with my daughter. Um, you know, that gives us time to actually spend time together. And we, we also talk about the things that we are watching. So one of the shows that we are watching together is The Big Bang Theory. Um, mm. Really, really, you know, it's, it's off the air now, but a re really good show. And it's funny that you are coming up as my guest and the episode that we just finished watching is um, uh, in, in the, I'm going to set up the scene for you. Sheldon uh, Cooper, who's, who's a scientist, you know, like a theoretical mm -hmm. physicist, uh, in order to uh, modify Penny, who is Leonard's doing, stop it. Uh, you're not conditioning my girlfriend. <laughs> I was like, I've seen some very bad behavior. If, if, I, I, if I do a positive enforcement, it'll take me a week or two to change that behavior. Uh, but if it's uh, if you allow me to do some negative re reinforcements, uh, you know, like what? He goes like, oh, it's electric shock therapy. <laughs> I, can, I can work out all these negative behaviors within the hour. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually the best uh, reinforcement regime is actually what's called intermittent reinforcement. So you, you don't want them to get used to a pattern for it to become boring and predictable. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of people have gambling problems. That's actually deep in our evolution. We're trying to find... Um, the pattern of something that's random and we keep getting intermittent reinforcement for it. So we keep doing it. That's where the compulsion comes from. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think um, if you think about kind of addiction, right. And when I say addiction, I don't mean the, the kind of the social addictions that we have, right. Gambling, pornography, alcoholism, all of those kinds of things. Obviously those are serious diseases and stuff like that, but also uh, there are newer types of addiction too, right? Uh, social media, uh, you know, uh, playing online games, other types of things. They, they mm -hmm. could become uh, very addicting, and and it, you know, for some people, that's their lifestyle, and that's how they make money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, gamers on Twitch, for example, right? That's perfectly fine, right? But but when it becomes an addiction, because it it, uh, I, I want to move the conversation to pain and pleasure centers of the brain. And sure, how sure. that influences our decisions. Yeah, well, I have a whole uh, chapter on addiction actually in the book. And uh, the thing to understand is that all of these chemicals that we're talking about, like uh, dopamine and endorphins and, and the cannabinoids, all of those exist in the brain to do specific survival kind of tasks. And it's only when they misfire in a modern culture or when we externally load in large quantities of them that the brain wasn't designed for that we get the problems but uh they're there to reinforce behaviors which help us survive at least in normal quantities that are produced by our brain of those chemicals but you're absolutely right there's two ways that sheldon can um, change things uh, upside or downside and it turns out that people are about two to two and a half times more um I would you say influenced by downside, by pain avoidance, by uh, loss aversion, as it's called by the behavioral economists. And I see a lot of marketers doing this wrong. They say, well, we're the nice brand and we never say anything mean and we don't say bad stuff about our competitors. And I say, you're fighting with both hands tied behind your back. It's not like you have to badmouth your competitors, but Let's say you wanted to sell tooth whitening. Well, most people would say, have white teeth and a great smile. And I would say, do you have resting bastard face? Are you afraid to open your mouth because of those yellow dingy teeth? Are, are you have a hard time getting 
dates and partners? Are you going to die alone and your cats are going to eat you in your apartment because <laughs> no one is coming for several weeks? That's how you sell tooth whitening. The motivation to do it, to get us off of our comfortable spot is much stronger if we dig at the full implications of the negative stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, um, uh, it's kind of the loss aspect of it, right? If, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose. Uh, if I don't do this behavior, teeth whitening, for example, if I, if I don't get the teeth whitening, I cannot be in social circles or social gatherings or anything like that yes. because when I smile or, or I won't be able to smile, I have to talk like this, you know, exactly. Yeah, it, right. It, it, that sort of a enforcement, not it's 50% off. <laughs> right, right. Or, or, you know, you'll be rich, good looking and young and whatever tall it's no, you don't sell the upside. What you want to do is create the contrast. So would you actually think of it this way? You are the default for our brain is to do nothing because changing anything requires energy. So we're just kind of coasting along and the default response is do nothing. So you have to kind of get me off of my comfortable spot. And the best way to do it is what I call the, like the shock absorber, like in a car bam, you hit a pothole, it goes down and bounces up. That range, that dynamic range that you created between heaven and hell, if you will, is how much I value your solution. If you don't perturb me at all and it's just going along and I don't have to do anything, then I'm not gonna value your solution. So basically, no pain, no gain. It's the same in the gym and it's the same in marketing. If you can't create a pain in me, I'm not gonna give you the gain of my money. Yeah, you know, uh, one one of the um, examples I've used, and I and I really love this company and this kind of a case study. Um, going along with, with what you said just now, Gillette with their razors were going. It was it was pretty normal, right? You always saw the blades coming, and you saw in the in their ads like it's it's like shaving the, the shave, before. Yeah. Water was hitting the razor. That was it. That was the ad, basically. Yeah. Collection of ads. All right. And they use celebrities and so on and so forth. And then here comes a guy, Dollar Shave Club, shoots his ad for $4,500 in his warehouse. And he goes like, he starts throwing things out in, in that. I mean, th throwing all of your conceptions about what what uh, a razor should be, right? Completely out the door. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what he was actually... He was positioning against the cost also of, you know, the, the very name Dollar Shave Club, right? The, the ridiculous cost of razors. I mean, yes, there's a very sharp piece of titanium in it, but basically it's a piece of plastic, right? And you sell it for several dollars. And so he was talking about the pain of over your lifetime, how much are you going to pay for those Gillette blades when you can get the same thing from me for a fraction of the cost? So what he did is he actually amplified the pain by saying over the cost of your, or over the time of your life, you're spending thousands of extra dollars on that. And that hurts. To, to me, that it's a brilliant scheme because it's one of the best ROIs on a marketing campaign. Yeah. $4,500 into a billion dollars. <laughs> and also one of the keys with that one from an evolutionary psychology standpoint is it's a subscription-based model. You don't have to do anything. Now, remember I was saying the default of our brain is to do nothing. Well, yeah. if it hits your credit card every month and a package arrives with new blades every month, then you don't have to think about it or do anything. That conserves energy. And that's really, really important from the brain's perspective. Yep. So most companies like Netflix or the, the phone company that work on a subscription model, those are usually the most effective ones.
I mean, in, in a kind of older school, it used to be the newspaper. And then later on, it, it was your cable box, right? Yes. They will literally give you the cable box for either free or monthly installment. And then all the entertainment was being delivered to your home, you know? Yeah. And even with the newspaper, I mean, there used to, I remember a time when there were newspapers and newspaper delivery kids, usually, you know, boys or girls or teenagers. So it literally got delivered to you. You didn't have to do anything. Someone would chuck that newspaper on your front porch. You know, so that was an old school way of saying, you know, instant gratification. Yeah. Uh, so how do we manage risk reward as humans? Mm, that's, a, that's a really profound question. Um, I say one of the things that most people don't realize is that we are willing to pay for certainty, okay, to guarantee something, to get a reservation, um, and we'll pay a premium for that. So we don't, well, uh, we don't want to go to a rental car company, for example, at the airport when we arrive and say, well, I had a reservation, and then they say, well, we're out of cars. I mean, that happens all the time, right? That is something that's really, really hard for us to deal with. So we'll pay a premium to say, like, you're going to give me a car and it's I prepaying and it will be here when I arrive. Um, and also framing risk is an important thing. So for example, let's, let's say, God forbid you had some kind of health issue and you needed to get surgery and I'm your doctor, right? They say, hey, Sabir, look, you need to have the surgery, otherwise really bad things will happen. And, you know, 95% of the time, there are no complications or issues in and out in an hour. It's just outpatient. How's that sound? Not bad, right? I mean, you'd be willing to do it. How about this? Same thing, but I'm going to say it differently. Sabir, you have to have this surgery or otherwise bad things will happen. And, you know, 5% of the time, you're going to die on the operating table. But, but you know, that's, that's a really rare event. I just said the same thing in terms of the statistics of it. 95% of the time, everything will be fine, right? But by presenting it as a negative thing, we're going to interpret the risk very, very differently. Because as I mentioned earlier, we're keyed into the potential losses because that impacts our survival value. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. 95% versus 5%. Right. I yeah, mean, there's only five percent chance of dying on the table. What's I mean? This is, it's, that's a ninety-five percent chance of not dying on the table. Yeah, but your brain <laughs> hears the bigger number, right? If yeah. my chances are ninety-five percent, I'm going to be okay. Um, it's fine, right? Yeah. Versus, you didn't give me that positive. You told me the negative five percent. Now I'm asking a, a thousand questions in my head. Yes. What it's, kind it's, of people it, fall into that five percent? Right, I right. Might, and then, do I fall into it? You I, know? I remember when I did the LASIK surgery, uh, you know, there's like a 1% chance of something going wrong in, in LASIK. It's largely automated and computerized. and But still, I was just thinking, hell, if it could destroy my eyesight. I mean, this, the consequence is pretty significant of that 1%, right? So it, you see the same thing in gambling and coming back to that. For example, when people bet on horse races, they overvalue a couple of things. They either bet on the probability of the horse winning, that's why you overbet the favorite, or they uh, focus on the payoff, which is like the long shot pays a thousand to one. And so actually the best strategy is to bet the number two horse because the number one horse and the long shot are being disproportionately focused on. So you're actually getting better than true odds on the number two horse because everyone's ignoring it. It's a slight advantage and, you know, don't try this at home, but that it's been shown <laughs> in, in terms of human behavior. 
Uh, so just to clarify, on this show, uh, this week with Severe, we don't condone gambling. <laughs> gambling. If you have gambling addiction, please call your <laughs> call state authorities line. and seek professional help. <laughs> I, I need to put that in there. Yeah, otherwise you're going to be getting a lot of hate mail. No, I'm yeah. not condoning gambling. Yeah. Uh, so herd mentality. Um, you and I were talking about herd mentality just before uh, we, uh, we, we got on with this episode, with this live show. Uh, I had a very different thought of what herd mentality was. Can you clarify what, what herd mentality is? Yeah, so, so if you look at the, the reason I wrote Unleash Your Primal Brain is to understand who we are. You basically have to figure out what we picked up along the way. So you have to retrace the arc of evolution. And there's some very basic stuff that we share with lower forms of life and reptiles. And then when mammals came, uh, one of the things that they – figured out is like they take some longer to breed, to have adult functioning animals, but by staying in a herd, they're better off. And so that we have really strong, um, I guess you could say herd instincts. One of the chemicals involved in that is oxytocin. Basically it's, are you in my in-group or are you in my out-group? And with human beings, we have this intermediate state of, I don't know what your intention is towards me as well. I don't know which group you're going to be in. So basically, if you're alone as a mammal, you die. So you have to stay close to the herd. And you actually get reinforced for being within physical sight or touching someone because that kind of uh, makes that herd bond stronger. So we have a very, very strong attachment of, of course, parents to children. Um, and there are drugs like... MDMA, again, don't try this at home, but you know, the rave drugs that take somebody that you don't know, a total stranger with unknown intention towards you and puts them into your in-group, which is why you love them and the world is wonderful because we're shifting them into an in-group. Um, and that's very, very powerful. So staying in groups, um, following what others are doing, that's, that's kind of our mammalian instincts. And that's what makes us different from an alligator that spawns a bunch of eggs and then swims away. And maybe some of them will live. That's a very different style of living and parenting. So when, um, so in the show is actually the audience that follows the show is, uh, they're entrepreneurs, they're marketers, they're business owners, right? And uh, we have some guests, I mean, some audience uh, members who are like venture capitalists and angel mm -hmm. investors and stuff like that. From, in, from a business context and a marketing context, how do you utilize some of the principles? Actually, let's talk about the principles, but also let's talk about like the, uh, maybe some of the applications uh, of, of um, knowing this. How do you, how do you utilize it? Yeah, so, so that the herd stuff we were talking about is feeling safe and understood and getting the protection of the larger group. So that says as, as a brand or as a marketer, you have to be super clear on who your audience is. So a lot, a lot of times I hear like, okay, we're, we're going to build the minimum viable product and then we'll try different messaging and then everybody in the world will buy our crap. Well, that's really completely backwards. Any effective marketer should be doing the following. Identify your audience, understand what they really care about and what they value, and then design products and services and messaging in order to attract them and to sell to them. That's the sequence. So the first thing you have to do as a marketer is understand who your tribe is, because if you don't, your messages will land very differently. Let me give you a quick example. Let's say I gave you this objective description. This is something you could film with a video camera, right? It's reality-based. So um, 
the bull steps inside of arena uh, or, or the matador steps inside of the arena and the bull charges him and the matador deftly sidesteps and sticks a sword between its shoulder blades killing the bull okay now that's an objective reality we can agree on that right yeah. so uh, but how that story is received is going to de depend radically on your audience. If you're from Spain and you love bullfighting, then it's about tradition, about excellence, about being an impeccable warrior, man versus raw nature, all of that, right? But if you're from PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, you think it's this barbaric blood sport and people are paying to see animals tortured and killed and it should be stopped immediately. So if you don't know who your audience is, telling that objective story is going to evoke very, very different responses. That's why it's super important for marketers to, to pick a very narrow audience. Um, anybody that says, well, all 8 billion people on the planet need our crap. Well, that's you don't have a brand because you can't you don't even know how to message people with something that broad. I mean, there are so many oh, actually two points. Number one, uh, it's funny that when you were giving that example, I went like. There you go. My 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 cell phone is gonna blow up with all of the raw vegan uh, you know friends that I have. Right. They'll say why did you even use that example on on your show? <laughs> Very intentionally because it draws strong reactions from. People. That's what I was thinking. Like as soon as as soon as uh, uh, you said that, but I I think it's um, uh, when you create segmentation, right? Eight billion people can't be your customer, right? Right. Because there could be just if you just think about the economic factor, meaning that can I afford this thing you're selling me, right? Mm -hmm. To you, selling a chewing gum might be oh, is it just a chewing gum? It's fifty cents, it's maybe a dollar, right, for mm -hmm. a pack. But some people may not be able to afford chewing gum. To them, chewing gum is a luxury. In in some cultures, uh, you know, in the United States, it's kind of frowned upon when you when you smoke. In other cultures, I know, when you smoke, it kind of shows that uh, you, you are you have you earn so much that you could you're, you could afford to smoke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was born in the former Soviet Union in what's now Russia, Moscow, Russia, and I've gone back several times over the decades. I left when I was eight years old. The first time I went back, we brought a suitcase full of blue jeans and and cartons of Marlboros because that was the currency. It was like that was the cool luxury item. I mean, I don't know too many Russians that smoke these days. It's not cool anymore. To your <laughs> point, you know, they got past that. It's not a luxury item. Yep. Uh, so monkey see, monkey do. Mm. Yeah, that is one of the things that um, we we really underestimate is like how helpless people are uh, when we're born. We're born with these oversized, unwired, uninsulated brains. We keep our body small until puberty and when we have a huge growth spurt. And all of that is to make sure that our brains grow. But we're pretty useless physically. Little kids aren't that coordinated or strong, can't fend for themselves. And so you think, well, what are they doing this whole time? Why is that even important for them to remain helpless for so long? It turns out that we're basically modeling all of the behavior around us. So we have these things called mirror neurons and people have a much wider variety and a larger quantity of them than any other animal. And we're watching everything people do, the noises they make, the gestures, their facial expressions, what they're doing. In fact, we're basically, when we see someone doing something, we're imitating what they're doing physically. So if you see me pick up this cup and drink from it, 
you have circuits in your brain right now that are mimicking that and actually arresting the physical motion. So you're not mimicking it by actually doing it, but you're simulating it. And so mm -hmm. we learn a lot through simulation by watching people around us. That's how we get our knowledge. And these mirror neurons basically help us to learn without having to do it ourselves. It's a very powerful mechanism. I mean, one of the examples that I learned very young from a very young age was uh, yawning. Yawning <laughs> is contagious, right? As soon as one person yawns in the room, uh, like especially when you're going to school and in your class, some a kid gets uh, bored and yawns, it, it's guaranteed that the rest of that room is going to yawn eventually. Like it's, yeah, and people then, might fight that, it, but they'll still do it. Yeah, even then, well, that's a case where they actually are actually repeating your physical motions. But one of the things I was amazed at, and uh, there's still a long way to go, but my 16-year-old son, you know, he wanted some practice driving lessons. And, you know, I was amazed. He knew how to get in the car, how to start the car, how to use the steering wheel, the brakes. Well, of course, because he's watched me do that for thousands of hours already. So it shouldn't be some big surprise, but he's actually learning just by being in the car with me and seeing me drive. Uh, so that's the key is, is it's, it's simulation. There's other times we do simulation. Storytelling is another great example. Our brains sync up with the storyteller's brain and we are learning from their secondhand experience. Another one is dreaming uh, during REM sleep. This really cool stuff happens. We actually cut off and paralyze the, the voluntary muscles in the body so we can simulate various kinds of scary usually experiences like running away from the bear. And so we paralyze our body so we don't actually run off the cliff while we're running away from the bear, but we're getting to practice a dangerous event by simulating it without paying the consequences. So you can think of the brain as a simulation or modeling engine in large part. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, the storytelling part. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I'm a speaker. I do speak at, at different um, uh, venues and stuff like that, the various different mm -hmm. topics, a lot to do with business marketing and, and stuff like that. Something uh, we share in common, yeah. As you know, I'm an international keynote speaker myself. Yeah. So one of the things I, I it's interesting you're you're talking about storytelling. One part of storytelling has to do with um, getting the audience to go along with you, right? Mm. You know, whatever whatever um, experiences you had, and when a speaker goes up on stage and starts telling that story, whether it's how a business got turned around to if somebody was fighting cancer, right? Right. They yeah. are, they are the the um, whoever the consumer is in that audience. They're consuming that information, mm -hmm. and in my view, and I want to I want to hear your thoughts about it because you you have done all the research here. Uh, it's how do I relate if I'm a consumer? How do I relate to her on stage? Whether it's TED Talk, uh, Sabir talking, or Tim talking on various different topics, how do I relate to it? One is. If I'm talking about all the pain, right? All the pain business people face, here are 10 different lotions that you could apply, right? Mm -hmm. to, to get relief from it. People in that audience would relate to it. But there are certain other um, mechanisms uh, and, and techniques speakers use on stage uh, to, get, to make sure that people get along uh, with the story, right? Mm -hmm. one, one obvious one I've seen, and I've seen the good speakers, they do this, when, when, if they're in the middle of the day, they're, they're the ones speaking in the middle of the day, meaning that people have been sitting for the past three hours, they walk in go like, you must be really tired sitting down. Why don't you get up and stretch, right? Mm -hmm. 
when you do that, in my opinion, right, because I, I, I've been studying doing e-commerce, I've been studying people in, in huge scale, right, of every behavior that they do. To me, when you come in and do that, you already got the audience on your side because you just gave them relief. Because I could be sitting down and I, I could be, um, you know, in pain because of sitting or fidgeting or whatever. You just can't, and I didn't want to get up, right? Because nobody else is getting up, herd mentality, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody else is doing it. I'm not going to do it. So when when you get, when when a speaker comes in and says, oh, why don't you, let's do a seventh inning stretch together. Mm -hmm. They all get up, they do it. Now all of a sudden, the next thing the guy says or the gal says, they're eating it up, whatever. Yeah, well, whatever. so one of the, the keys you pointed out, and this is a, has to do with group cohesion as well, is any kind of synchronized physical activities have a huge bonding effect, whether you believe in them or not or want to do them. So like, you know, I, I remember in the 80s when Japan was kind of dominant economically and everyone was afraid they'd take over the world, you know, they did have the these calisthenics. They'd be giant groups of people, you know, going out at lunch and doing calisthenics out in the, in the factory parking lot. Well, it turns out that Tai Chi or singing in a choir or yoga or anything where you're doing synchronized physical motions uh, actually bonds people closer together. So you're absolutely right that getting up and doing the same thing in a synchronized way is, is a good way to bring group cohesion up. And, and just to continue with that example, because it's highly relevant, by the way, storytelling, whether, you, whether you're a speaker or you're, you're a marketer running and selling Gillette razors, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. It, it's both have to do with effective storytelling. Yes. And the there, in a room of, let's say, 500 attendees or 250 attendees, as soon as that speaker is done, what happens? You get a mad rush of 20 people going to the stage, wanting to talk to the guy to say, I really relate to whatever you said, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and it's absolutely right that there's a, um, I guess I'd say a, um, the synchronization, again, depends on what's being talked about though. So it's really, really important to, to read your audience and to understand their expectations. Whenever I speak in front of large groups, I always want a really deep briefing on the background, their psychology. Ideally, if I'm at the event and I'm not the opening keynote, I want to spend time interacting with the attendees so I can get a vibe for them. So then when I do go up on stage, I understand their mentality, what's important to them and their values, I guess you could say. Uh, because again, the stories I choose to tell even are going to be different depending on the impact that I'm trying to have on a particular audience. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, other applications I want to I talk about because um, I, I've actually used it very, very effectively has to do with one application of it being loyalty marketing, mm. right? Uh, uh, loyalty marketing uh, for for the audience members that don't know what that is. It's it's um, when when you want to reward your customers for a certain type of behavior. Mm -hmm. It could be you know they're engaging with your email to uh, maybe a hard act like they're actually purchasing from you and you have their credit card and they paid for it versus mm -hmm. people who take you up on uh, subscriptions and stuff yeah, like, like that. Frequent flyer programs that the airlines have, that sort of thing. Yeah, ob obviously. Yeah. I mean like American airline miles, Delta miles and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. I, and other marketers also, product marketers also utilize that. You know, if you're, if you've bought one transaction with them, they want you to get to two transactions. They'll give you some kind of reward for you to, if they don't see you more than twice a year and they want to see you three times, 
they'll give you some sort of a reward for double your points in order for you to come um, come back. There are loyalty marketing by itself is a gigantic topic, you know. Yes, a but lot wanna, of it based on evolutionary psychology. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to talk about it specifically to do with uh, evolutionary psychology and neural neural marketing. Uh, mm. What is your approach to, to loyalty marketing from your perspective? Well, I think that um, w one of the things that you can do is you can think of it from a cultural perspective of tribal cohesion. And I'll, I'll get to that. But just a quick tactical tip for anybody that's doing it. Let's say you want to give a 10% off essentially volume discount. So for every 10 purchases, you get a free whatever car wash. That's that's the one that I get uh, here locally. Well, one of the things you want to do is to start people off and create that momentum. Remember, like the, the brain... Um, likes closure, it likes certainty, it, 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 the default is to do nothing. So what if you, you know, you want to give me that 10% off, you say every 12 car washes, you get one free. But here, you know, since you're a first time person, I'm going to just do two of those little star stamps on your card right now. So you're still leaving them 10 blank ones, which is your 10% off level. But by giving them that psychological momentum of giving them a few miles, that's why you see those like frequent flyer programs. They always say when you join and you spend just $3,000, we'll give you 50,000 bonus American miles. Yeah. That's that same psychology. You feel like you're getting closer to the goal, but the amount to go is still the same. You know, so they're kind of like just gi giving you something for free uh, creating psychological momentum towards the loyalty program, conditioning you to use it, uh, all of those things. So the, usually the first offer is extra generous in a loyalty program. That's a really key part of how to structure them. You, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the 50,000 points for signing up for American Express with Delta Sky Miles, you know, something like that. Yeah. Uh, what they, I, I, what, what actually, it's brilliant because on, on the application, whether it's on the website or on paper and you're in the plane and you have the application to fill out there, it actually gives you what benefits are at what level, right? Mm -hmm. They go like, oh, the business upgrade is going to be 10,000 points. For you to get a, a free ticket for the year, it's going to be this. So what, what they're doing is they're, they're showing you value of what that free, free 50,000 miles you just got for spending the first $3,000 Mm -hmm. how you can actually benefit from it immediately, right? It's, yeah. it's not as obvious as $10, $10 off or 10% off, but they're giving you that that comparison so that your mind says, oh, you know what? Just, I'm going to spend the 3000 anyways on, I don't know, utilities, uh, you know, buying food, whatever, you know, and they'll give me 50000 That means that I can get two airline tickets to go XYZ, you know? Yes, and, and actually those type of points programs are really smart because they give you a range of things you can get with the points as well. So uh, this is a, a something that goes very deeply into our evolutionary psychology to a sense of ownership. One way to get people to value something is for them to feel ownership of it because we evolved in an environment where we couldn't carry anything, I mean, nothing heavy. So you might carry weapons or water or some clothing. You might carry your drooling baby on your shoulder because it can't walk yet. But everything we chose to carry literally had survival value. So we overvalue things that we own, but that also extends to customizing things. So when I'm imagining in my head, well, let's see, I could use those bonus miles to take my wife out to dinner, or I could use it for a cruise, or I can use it for cash back. And I'm trying those things on for size. And in my brain, 
I'm feeling more attached to it because I kind of own it. I'm previewing the experience. So anything you can do to have people customize it for their own use, uh, even having them visualize the experience of getting it uh, will make them more attached to it and value it more highly, actually. It does. Um, so one of the things that I that I heavily utilize in, in, in my area, right, of, of work that I do, uh, color plays a huge role, right? Does evolutionary psychology also address uh, color, meaning that how do we react to certain types of color and, and moods and stuff like that based on uh, the color that are, the colors that are represented to us? Um, that's a mixed bag. There are certainly certain ways that our visual system is wired, and I can go into that more broadly. But in terms of color specifically, we're tuned to our environment. So we always see a blue sky and green grass. Uh, so those are, we don't react to those colors. Unusual colors in the environment will stand out. So for example, in the natural world, how often do you see orange? And not very. I mean, you might see an occasional flower when it's flowering, or you might see a sunset for a few minutes that's orange. But that stands out just because of its rarity. So there are universal things like that. But a lot of other colors are conditioned culturally. So for example, in parts of the Middle East, I believe uh, green, which has a very positive kind of eco-friendly connotation in the West, is the color of mourning of somebody mm -hmm. dying. You know, so, you know, that's not a cultural association you want to have without understanding who you're talking to. Uh, so a lot of those things are culturally agreed upon constructs too. Do you know, for example, in the, in the U S or in the West, you know, blue is for boys and pink is for girls. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? A hundred years ago, it was actually switched. That's just a preference. That's a cultural construct. That's what we all agreed on. It actually was pink for boys and blue for girls. Wow. And yeah, you go, wow, it's like crazy. But a lot of things are like that where like you're driving on the quote wrong side of the road in England. Somebody just made the decision. You drive on this side versus this side. There's no right or wrong about it. So a convention is something that a group of people agree on um, that kind of is a, is a mental shortcut and makes life easier. And color, uh, I think, to a large extent falls into that category. They're culturally agreed on conventions of what colors mean. But there are things like... Um, for example, fast food colors are always reds or yellows or oranges that excite and stimulate the appetite. That's some things like that are at a biological level, but a lot of other colors aren't. Yeah. I mean, as an example, because I measure everything that I do and I've, we've had guests uh, uh, like Avinash um, Kaushik yeah, on the show. Yeah, he's yeah, he's a brilliant a analyst, yeah. incredible guy, right? everything we do, we have to like, uh, as a digital marketers, we have to measure it. And then whatever the truth is at the moment, you know, cause it could be seasonal. Uh, we, we adapt that and we yeah. scale that. Well, but know. there, there are, you know, and of course I ran site tuners, which was a conversion rate optimization agency for yep. over 20 yeah. years. So I, I know a little about this, but people always ask me like, what's the best button color on the call to action, you know, that gets the most, most response. And, it's not so much about that. There are more general principles that I would say, whatever your main call to action is on a landing page, for example, should be unique and dominant on the page. If you're using a red button, there shouldn't be three or four other red buttons on the page. It should be like the thing that jumps out at you. It's a beacon. You should very carefully design the visual priorities on the page in terms of what you want people to do. So if everything else is kind of a benign 
blue green and you have an orange button and it's the only contrasty high value thing on the page that will draw my attention of course motion and you know, visual emphasis of various kinds is also plays a huge role in things like that so there are more general principles you could use regardless of the specifics yep so um uh how did we evolve because you, you mentioned uh culture right how do we evolve as as uh, you know to be to become to have become a cultural creatures and and when i see tools nowadays i mean it used to be around the fire right and in the early days mm -hmm. right, of, of mankind uh or womankind and now we have uh social media TikTok, twitter snapchat uh instagram and so on uh, when you when you look at that, like how did we evolve to to have become cultural cre creatures? Mm, wow, that's a that's a deep topic. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll um, I'll just give you the highlights. I mean, there's a lot of things that make us bizarrely human, even different from our chimp or bonobo or gorilla cousins, which only forked off evolutionarily speaking a few million years ago. But we. Um, are weaker than them. We're slower than them. We have poorer senses, uh, pound for pound, or definitely weaker. And what we're, we're relying on is again that kind of cultural learning. And the key is imitating things. And who do we imitate? The people that are most like us. So unfortunately, there's a lot of division in politics and so on. But we're actually hardwired to imitate people that speak in our dialect, that are our gender, that look like us. Uh, so we're, we're basically preserving our genes because what we evolved for, like you say, sitting around that campfire on the Serengeti was to be with our uh, genetic tribe, 100 to 200 people that were our close relatives. And so we're there to learn from them and we're there to propagate those genes. And so basically how culture works is we watch the people around us and we blindly imitate it. And that's really, really important because if you're not a team player, uh, you're going to get thrown out of the tribe. So, for example, I, you know, I say to you, Sabir, I, I, the world's flat. And you go, well, you know, I went on the mast of the sailing ship and then it, I kind of saw curvature to the earth. And I think it might be a sphere. You know what we do to you? We throw you off that freaking mast because you're not a team player. So it's not important to be right. It's important to transmit culture reliably and without any modifications, basically blind obedience. This is a scary thing, and it's definitely being harnessed by social media and politicians in our time. Uh, but the, the idea is that it's important. Tribal cohesion is what wins. And, and that means that you have to kind of um, repeat the whole agenda and even deny your own reality. So you see something with your own eyes, but I tell you, nope, the world's flat, get with the program. You're going to feel a lot of peer pressure if everybody around you is saying the world is flat to, to take on that belief system. Otherwise, again, you'll be isolated, cut out of the tribe, excommunicated, killed. You know, there's a lot of escalating consequences that'll happen to you if you're not towing the party line. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, uh, watching, if, if you turn on CNN or Fox or any any of the channels here in the United States, you actually get a very clear direction of where does that person sit, right? Yeah, how to think and what you're supposed yeah. to it's, it's not it's, it's not an open debate. It's like, no, this is it. This is where I am. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm here. This is what I'm, what I think. There's no, there, there is no logic in the middle there. 
It's right. like, this is and, what and, I believe and, and, in. And again, reality-based stuff. I mean, you go like, well, here's the science and here's a cult that's telling you something else. Uh, you know, how can you believe a cult? Well, it's because the, the, the advantages of being in the tribe are so powerful that they override our direct experience or, or even, you know, conscious thought. And, and then it, again, it could be a very dangerous thing. And when you apply the profit motive to it, personally, I'm not optimistic. You know, recently Facebook's been in the news. Of course, yeah. they're responding to the profit motive and uh, making stuff that polarizes people for engagement. I think it's a very dangerous thing. And if we don't deal with it, uh, democracies around the world are going to start falling down like dominoes. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about the uh, the effect when I say effect, I don't mean positive or negative. I just mean effect, right? Of um, social media, right? Uh, from Arab Spring to George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. That's what's fueled a lot of these kind of uh, protests and, and and those kinds of things, right? And at the same time, then you have like the January 6th riots, you know, that, that happened. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is a very powerful tool. It's no longer yeah. that you have your message and you broadcast it and it's just, there are four channels on TV that you could watch. You, you can completely control uh, what people are watching, including how you how you can target those audiences actually. Yeah, to and, and, and then over time, it's, it gets a conformance issue that so people do get radicalized by, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's a self-feedback loop. Oh, I react to this content, I get more of that content. And it's a little more extreme and more radical. And so we get sorted into these echo chambers where we're only talking to people just like us. So it's a very, very corrosive and dangerous thing for democracy. That's, that's again, my personal belief. And um, if we don't deal with it soon, we're going to have some big problems coming down the pike. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel sorry for if you're a journalist or you're a college student doing some research paper. And then you go on these platforms and you go a rabbit hole and you go very detailed, right? Then all of a sudden your your profile is painted as whatever that thing is, whatever you were researching, that yeah. you're radicalized that person, <laughs> even though you were researching, you were researching for a for yeah, a newspaper that, yeah, article or be, for your yeah. paper. Yep. Now you're getting fed a very skewed thing just based on what you searched for or looked into. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um I want to talk about two topics that are, uh, to me, it's evolutionary, right? And because uh, the time period t depends on um, what we have around us and, and and it has to do with happiness, right? Mm. What is the chemistry of happiness? Mm. Well, we have a lot of... Happiness isn't happiness. Happiness is motivation. Happiness is uh, to get you to do something. Okay. If I'm happy, I will what? I will kiss. I'll have sex. I'll um, eat more of this food. Uh, you know, I'll go on this vacation, whatever it is. You know, so happiness is, is, is a motivation. But if you're permanently happy and, you know, you have examples like this, we talked about addiction. If you're in a opium den in Hong Kong a hundred years ago, you're permanently happy, but you also completely checked out and you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> because you're not bothering to eat or clean yourself. You're just sitting there hitting that opium pipe, right? So there's no such thing as permanent happiness. Most of the happiness chemicals, and there are several that fall in that category, work on the timescale of a minute or two or three or 10. 
That's it. Because if you're permanently happy, you wouldn't be motivated to do anything. We don't live in a world where fish jump out of the sea onto our campfire or coconuts fall from the trees so we can eat them. You know, if you didn't have to do anything, you could be happy. But the point is to survive, all life has to expend effort. So the happiness is there to direct where you use that energy. But it's not some kind of blissed out state. I mean, this is not for me. I'm not an advanced Zen master that can call up those kinds of um, chemicals in my, in my brain and my body at will. Stress chemicals, on the other hand, circulate for much longer. And, and that's another problem with modern societies because, you know, if a bear is attacking you, you could deal with that. And cortisol, adrenaline surges through your body. You deal with the situation. If you survive, those levels go down. But when you have to pay the mortgage or lose a job or live without health insurance, that's like battery acid dripping into you on a continual basis for years on end. So the effects of unhappy chemicals in modern society, since we weren't geared to for these long-term amorphous kind of survival threats, um, is really, really bad. And happiness chemicals are, um, most of the happy chemicals lead to addiction. Most happy chemicals lead to doing too much of that thing. And if you mess that up by taking external quantities of those happy chemicals, uh, then that that's really a dark path to go down. Uh, so I, I think, you know, most people are talking about like hacking happiness and being happy more of the time. I don't think that's possible. That's not how our brains are designed. But, but in 2021 compared to like, let's say 50 years ago, um, the moment of happiness, this is at least my theory, right? Mm -hmm. The moment of happiness, or at least a question to you, right? Uh, the moment of happiness could have lasted a while because you did not have as much external uh, stimula stimulation, right? You had four channels on TV. You had your newspaper, national newspaper and a local newspaper, right? I, I, the, the, the feedback loop that was coming in was very little. Now you're happy, you take a photo, you put it on Instagram, right? Your happiness might last 1.7 seconds. Yeah, it, it's, that could have lasted you a longer period. Now you're comparing yourself to all the other people who are having lunch at this restaurant or that restaurant or whatever. Let's right, say putting their, their pretty plates of sushi on Instagram. No, I, yeah, no, I agree with you. In fact, you know, this recent Facebook uh, whistleblower said that they that Facebook knows that Instagram, for example, makes a significant proportion of teenage girls unhappy with their body self-image is they're constantly being compared to some ridiculous photoshopped, you know, duck lip filtered, nice angle shot of, of another person, you know, and it's not reality based. Uh, so is this standards are just unsustainable and, and make you unhappy if you're going to compare yourself. So yeah, the social media again is making all of that worse. But my point is that happiness doesn't last a long time under any circumstances. The only, um, renewable resource of happiness is gratitude. It's basically going back and recapitulating good things that have happened to you and expressing gratitude for it. And like, for example, a lot of religious people will say their prayers at night and they'll include people. Oh, I'm, I'm glad I'm happy for mom and for dad. And you know, grandma's doing well and that I got to see my friends today. That's a really smart strategy, especially before bedtime, because you're setting 
the stage for what your brain's going to remember and incorporate into your kind of longer term memories the following day. So uh, I highly recommend basically being grateful all the time. Uh, that's not an addictive thing, and it does trigger some of the happiness chemicals reliably. I, I think I may have seen something uh, maybe on Discovery Channel or someone something where uh, a, a brain of a, a monk was under MRI and when mm -hmm. he had like gratitude and he was meditating and he had gratitude, how calm his brain was compared to, you know, any other type of a, like a normal brain or of any other person. The, yeah, absolutely. So the, so the operating system is the same for all of us. Most of us don't bother focusing on personal development or the brain or mindfulness. Uh, but there's a lot of the, like tactical tips you can do with, with sleep, for example, getting rid of devices in your room. I don't sleep with my cell phone in my bedroom. Even just that, creating that little friction point of having to get up and go get it in another room um, in the morning gives me a totally different way to start the day and to end the day. So um, we have to really watch for those digital addictions and, um, and you know, focus on uh, practices that calm and center the mind. So anything along the lines of Tai Chi or yoga or meditation, um, there, it's not just the, you know, the hippies here in California where I live. It's, it's, <laughs> it's been proven, like you say, this technology has been practiced by, by Buddhists and Hindus for many thousands of years and it works. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, one of the, um, things that I see in like sitcoms, right. Uh, there's always a fight some kind of a fight and in that fight it's like you're not being rational right <laughs> you're not being rational that's irrational where's the truth and lie in in being rational well i would say this is probably a good way to sum up everything we've been talking about here is um there is no such thing as rational and i mean that literally there have been people that have various kinds of brain damage and parts of their brain are separated and not talking. You can't make a decision without an emotional input. So think about it this way. Right now, you can do um, infinitely many things. You can jerk your arm, you can fart, you can, but you're not choosing to do those things, right? So how do you prioritize infinitely many options in any given moment? Well, your emotions do that for you. Your emotions and your built-in reactions and so on, they're, the stronger the emotion, the more likely you are to act on it, whether it's positive or negative. Again, both are motivating, negative to a greater degree, but you need the emotions to prioritize the actions to make you want to act. And anything that happens after the fact is just a rationalization. In fact, Robert Heinlein, who's a science fiction author I really like, he said, man is not a rational animal. Man is a rationalizing animal. Anything you use for, that comes out of your mouth as words is a lie. They've shown on brain scans. Here's the decision getting made in the brain. Then this other part, split second later, lights up to explain it. Two different processes. One is just the cover story. One is the alibi. So there is no such thing as a rational brain. It's all emotional. It's all dependent on the context. It all depends on your current goal, whether you're hungry or horny or, or tired. All of that's going to play into the decision, and it's prioritized emotionally. So, Tim, we're at that part of the show where I ask uh, all of my guests to part ways with their number one 
uh, expert insight into, in your case, neuromarketing and, and unleashing the primal brain. What is your number one mm. expert insight? Oh, again, I think, you know, if we kind of put a, to tie this all together, I would say that if you want to have an effective career in any field where you have to understand people, uh, of course, marketing is one of those, but it could be leadership or culture building or organization um, building sales, or just having a good relationship with your spouse or your kids or good friendships, you need to understand evolutionary psychology. We picked up this stuff along the way different parts of the brain or we share with insects and it's still working hard on our behalf hundreds of millions of years later and there's some distinctly human bizarre things that we that are very recent but basically stop focusing on the technology focus on the psychology understand the operating system that doesn't change on an evolutionary time scale before the AI singularity takes over, or there's a climate crisis or a nuclear war. I know I'm being so optimistic right now, but before <laughs> any of that can happen, your brain's not going to change from an evolutionary standpoint. So understanding how brains work, this is a golden age of understanding that. If you want to have a long, durable career as a marketer, focus on the durable stuff. It's not about Twitter this or virtual reality that. I'm, I don't know what's going to be like hologram suppositories tomorrow. It doesn't matter what the technology is. We're still trying to influence the same unchanging effectively human brain. So focus on the psychology and not on the technology. Tim, thank you for being on the show. I want to remind the audience, definitely pick up this book. It's it's a brilliant book. I, uh, you know, it, it, it goes up on my list of uh, like the my, my top 10 books. Definitely I'm going to uh, and I already learned quite a lot, by the way, Tim, not just through the, in the episode here, but also uh, the audiobook and, and the actual text. And definitely I'm going to put it in, uh, in you know, to good use. Uh, you can reach uh, Tim at timash.com. And also the other one that I was flashing was primalbrain.com. That's, that's related to the book. Uh, Tim, thank you for joining us. Oh, Sabir, it's been my honor. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.